0: In the Peanuts cartoon strip, illustrator Charles Schultz offers an observation about life. Lucy is holding court within earshot of the hapless Charlie Brown, and she muses out loud, life is like a deck chair. Some put it where they can see where they are going, some put it so they can see where they have been, and some... Put it where they can see where they are now. Poor Charlie Brown is standing back, muttering to himself, I can't even get my deck chair unfolded. <laughs> can you identify with that? Well, it doesn't matter what direction your deck chair is facing these days. There are troubles on every side. If you look if you look ahead, it's unsettling everything from wars to the moral chaos to the national debt. If you look back, it's with regret because of the consequences of our unwise decisions that will very likely be visited on our children and our grandchildren. If you look at the present, it's with frustration because of our deeply divided country. It's just a fact. Troubles surround us in this life, and I haven't even referenced the personal stuff that we have to manage that can be even more troublesome. And there are some of us, like Charlie Brown, who are still struggling to even get our deck chair unfolded. Well, I have good news. This entire seven-weekend series of messages are going to amplify the words of Jesus in John 10.10. He said, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. We're talking about the good life now, and I'm telling you, it is possible because heaven is on our side, life to the full. That's what Jesus wants us to experience The Bible itself is called the Word of Life, and it's never truer than in the book of James in the New Testament. I want to invite you to turn there now. We're going to be living there for the next several consecutive weekends. The book of James is the very first New Testament book written, 15 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the book of James answers the practical question, how shall we live until Jesus returns? And in the book of James there are five chapters, 108 verses, and of these verses, exactly one half, fifty-four of them, are imperatives. So James is going to tell us how to live. And somebody might say, well, I don't like that. I don't want anyone else telling me how to live my life. And you need to know that people with such an attitude of resistance or reluctance to learn from the Word of life, people who are not teachable, who are not submissive, who are not available to learn from the Word of God, they will will live to regret it. This book is written by James, who is the half-brother of Jesus Himself. In other words, James had Mary and Joseph as his biological parents, but Jesus was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. But look at how James introduces himself in chapter 1 verse 1. Even though he's the recognized leader of the Jerusalem church, even though he is a blood relative of the Messiah, James calls himself a bond slave, a bond slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have to tell you, that impresses me because I have two blood brothers, and I promise you, neither one of them think I am perfect. But here, James, who saw Jesus up close and personal, testified he's one with God, that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a profound assertion of His deity, and James addresses his epistle to Christians who are scattered among the nations because of persecution by the Jews. And since these early Christ followers are dealing with troubles, the likes of which most of us have not experienced, but we may, in the days ahead, James dives right into the subject of how troubles can provide us with a unique opportunity to be blessed. Let's look at the text. James chapter 1 beginning in verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face various trials or troubles of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work, that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial or trouble, because when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. These verses are absolutely loaded. This passage gives us three insights about our troubles and gives us three blessings that are available to us in times of trouble. Now, the first insight about our troubles is this, troubles are unavoidable. In verse 2, "...consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds." Now, James says whenever you face troubles, he does not say if. So we need to realize that troubles are not electives in life. They are part of the core curriculum of life. And there are trials or troubles, he says, of many kinds, and he uses an adjective here that literally means multicolored because of the intensity and because of the variety of our troubles. And for some of us here this morning, it may involve the pain of a lingering illness, you or someone you love. Your troubles may involve an untimely death of a friend or a family member. Some of you here may know the heartache of a broken marriage or a short-circuited romance. Our troubles may come from an alcoholic parent or a rebellious child. Some struggle with financial problems or career disappointments. Still others combat lingering depression or they're enslaved by habits that seem unbreakable. Our troubles. Our troubles are unavoidable and they are many. But the second insight is that troubles are a test of our faith. Verse 3 says, the testing of your faith. Now, it's just referred to troubles of many kinds, and then it says, these troubles constitute a test. They are the testing of your faith. And I want to give you the four most common ways that our faith is tested, just so you'll be aware of them, and more than likely, you will be tested in one or more of these ways in the coming weeks, so just count on it. First of all, God tests our faith with difficulties. Now, you need to know that nothing ever happens by accident to a child of God, to a follower of Jesus. Everything, if you're a child of God, everything is Father-filtered. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me here. I'm not saying that God causes the bad things that happen to you. He doesn't have to. We live in a broken world. We live in a crowded world. A lot of our problems we bring on ourselves by our bad attitudes or our bad behaviors. And then, of course, there are some troubles that are inflicted on us by others. But what I'm saying is this. Nothing comes into your life without God's consent. And listen, sometimes our disappointments become His appointments. Sometimes we experience a problem that's big and unusual, and a good illustration of this is Jonah in the Old Testament. Now, Jonah, his difficulty literally swallowed him up, and Jonah in chapter 2, verse 7 said, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayers rose to you. Now, Jonah's trouble was all-consuming, so sometimes... God wants to wake us up so we'll find our solace and our refuge in Him. So God tests us with difficulties, tests our faith with difficulties, and He also tests our faith with demands. He directs us to do things that seem impossible sometimes. Now, there are 1,050 commands in the New Testament alone, and some of them are unreasonable. (laughs) Some of them are inconvenient. What are you going to do with this one? Don't worry about anything. Anyone struggle with that one? How about this one? How about this one? Do good to your enemies. There's one. Or this one, in everything give thanks. Or this one, confess your sins to one another. And every time God gives us a command in the Bible, it's like a demand that is placed on our life. It's a test. Am I going to do what God says to do? Am I going to do what He says is right, or am I going to do what I want to do? Am I going to do what I think is right in my own eyes? There are hundreds of examples in the Bible when God said to someone, do this or do that. And more often than not, they trusted Him. They obeyed, even though it didn't make sense, even though it seemed illogical to them. And God sometimes asks us to do the unreasonable. Why is that? One reason. So our faith will increase, so we'll grow in our faith. God spoke to Abraham when he was 75 years old. Abraham was about to hang it up when God said, Abraham, I want you to move someplace else. Abraham said, where? God said, I'll show you. Abraham said, well, how will I know when I've arrived? God said, I'll I'll tell you when. Now, you know what we'd say? We'd say, Lord, can I Google that first? That's what we'd say. Can I get some directions on MapQuest? That's what I want to know. But in Hebrews 11:8 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed and went. Boom, boom. I want you to move, Abraham. He obeyed and went. And like Abraham, we've got to learn to obey. When we're impressed that God has said for us to do something, we've got to just do it. Whether you understand it fully or not, whether it makes sense to you, you do it because you know it's His will you do it because you know when God gives you a command, it's a faith test. You're going to do it His way or your way. The third way that God tests our faith is with dollars. Did you know that money is one of the greatest tests of faith in your life? Few people understand this, and some people don't want to know how God uses money as a test of character, as a test of faith. They have no idea. They have no idea that God is testing them when they carelessly spend or when they get into too much credit card debt or when they routinely do not respond in obedience to opportunities to give. This has to do with our faith. Look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verse 11. He said, if you haven't been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, talking about dollars here, talking about money here, who will trust you with true riches? What's Jesus talking about here? Well, He's giving us a truth that's taught all throughout Scripture, that there's a direct relationship between how I handle my wealth and the spiritual debt in my life my monthly bank statements kind of like a credit card it indicates whether i'm passing one of god's tests of my faith and every time i sit down and write a tithe check to crossroads or i write a check for an offering to a mission knowing i could use that money to upgrade to a new iphone to buy the latest model car, to take an exotic vacation. I'm passing a test of my faith. And just like God uses difficulties, and just like God uses demands, He uses dollars as a test of our faith. And I've been so moved by the revolutionary generosity testimonies that have come from our people in recent months. We printed some of them in the worship bulletin the last several weeks. One of our families actually sold their larger home and moved into a smaller one so they could get their finances in a place to become obedient tithers for the first time. I read a testimony by one of our Crossroads men who gave up smoking to convert those dollars into benevolent gifts to needy people through our Agape Fund here at church. One family canceled their cable TV service to be able to give more generously, and all these are people who have gotten serious about passing the test represented by dollars. What about you? Can you be gut-level honest and ask yourself, Since God knows what I give to Him and to His purpose through the church, what would He say? Would He say that I truly trust Him? Would I pass the test? One more faith test here. God tests our faith with delays. If every prayer were immediately answered, if every need were automatically met, if every problem were instantly solved, you wouldn't need faith. And your faith would never be stretched. But life is not that way. We have delays, don't we? We've got to wait for the blood test results. We've got to wait for the house to sell. We've got to wait for the check to clear. We've got to wait for the job offer to be confirmed. We've got to wait for our surgery date to arrive. We've got to wait for the bank appraisal to come on, to come in. And on and on it goes. A lot of our lifetime is spent Waiting. And I'm not a very good waiter. I don't know about you. Have you ever done what I instinctively do when I approach an intersection, there are two lanes and there's one car in each lane. I try to look at the back of the heads of the driver and determine which one is the slower driver so I can get in the other lane. (laughs) Rather than wait an extra millisecond to get through the intersection. That is so dumb. (laughs) And and does anyone else talk to drivers in other cars? (laughs) I guess it must just be me. You know, someone has suggested that we would all do well to practice being delayed, because sometimes delays have a spiritual purpose, You're waiting on the x-ray results to come in. It gives you time to pray. You're waiting on that major surgery date. It gives you time to pray. Put yourself in God's hands. You remember the nation of Israel in the wilderness? They were waiting to enter the promised land. Big time delay. Why the delay? Take a look. Deuteronomy 8.2. Moses said, God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to test, to test you in order for you to know what was in your heart. God knew what was in their heart. The test wasn't for Him. The test was for them. Delays are a faith test. Well, troubles are unavoidable. Troubles are a test of our faith. And the final insight in the text is that troubles are a source of blessing. I'm going to blow your mind here this morning. Troubles are a source of blessing. Just look at these profound phrases, and I want you to note the underlying words in this passage. Consider it pure joy. There it is, joy. The testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The man who perseveres in trouble will receive, here it is, the crown of life that God has promised to those who love Him. I want to mess with your mind today. I want to try to change your mind about how you relate to your troubles. Troubles, we've all got them. There should be a difference between the way the natural man and the spiritual man react or respond in times of trouble. Now the natural person who is living out there in the world automatically gets down when they have trouble. Troubles produce a downer. Troubles are a downer. It's just automatic. It's a knee-jerk thing. You have troubles, boom. You get down, right? Do you notice the word in the text? Consider it pure joy. The word joy here in the language of the New Testament means to be buoyed up. It means to be buoyant. In other words, Christians don't get down automatically when they run into trouble. Instead, we get buoyed up. So don't let trials drown you. Push back with your faith on the bad stuff life deals you. Don't run away. Try to escape. Drink yourself into oblivion. Drug yourself into a catatonic stupor. Spend yourself into the poorhouse. Be buoyed up by your troubles. The same whelming flood that could drown you can buoy you up. Well, how is that? But we got to focus on the way God promises to bless us in tough life passages. What are those blessings? There are three of them in the text. There's, first of all, the immediate blessing of our troubles, which is it will produce a greater dependence on God. That's what the word perseverance means in the text. The word perseverance here literally means to remain under. In other words, God wants you to run to Him in your trouble. He wants to be your protection. He wants to be your provision. When Jesus lamented, looking out over the city of Jerusalem, here's what He said in Luke chapter 13. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. See, that's a problem with people today. We're too self-sufficient, too self-reliant, we're too resilient, we're too independent. The weekend after 9-11 was one of our finest hours as a nation. You remember what happened? That following weekend after 9-11, we poured into our houses of worship. We sought the Lord in our feelings of vulnerability, and He loved it. He loved it as any father would, whose children seek shelter and security in His embrace. But then we quickly recovered ourselves, and we said, We will rebuild. We will make the terrorists pay. We'll take care of business, God. You run along now. And we were back to wholesale, federally subsidized abortions and the redefinition of holy matrimony. We're back to our sex-saturated reality shows and our worship of everything that is Hollywood and Washington, D.C., Folks, it's not what our Heavenly Father wants. Listen, friends, God does not help those who help themselves. He helps those who admit they're helpless and turn to Him for help. And He wants us to be more dependent on Him, not less. He wants to be our vindicator. He doesn't want us to vindicate ourselves. We need to get over ourselves. We need to get over ourselves and get into the security of His protective arms. Let's not cause God to abandon us as a nation because we've dismissed Him and we've said, You know, we don't really need you, and we don't really want you, because He will go away. And I wonder sometimes if He hasn't already begun to turn His back. Well, the immediate blessing is greater dependence on God. That's a good thing. Troubles can do that for you. And then the intermediate blessing of troubles is accelerated maturity in our faith. Increased dependence, it says in the text, must finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. I want this, don't you, to be mature in your faith. Listen. It happens automatically, it happens effortlessly when we remain under God in times of trouble. And you will not be the same person once you emerge from your trials. And you will like the person you are after enduring your troubles so much better than the person you used to be. I want to introduce you to Merrill Womack. Over 70% of his body was burned in a private airplane crash on Thanksgiving Day 1961. His face disfigured, he endured many surgeries. Once a strikingly handsome man, his wife divorced him after the accident. Troubles indeed. He was once asked in an interview. Wouldn't you like to look like you used to look? Wouldn't you like to have everything the way it was before the accident? He paused before answering and he said, No. No, not if I would have to give up the relationship I have with the Lord today. He has a four-octave tenor voice. Now, this video is dated, but I want you to listen to the life song of Meryl Womack.
1: I've been happy before I'll be happy again there'll be rainbows to fill the sky and silver linings again he has promised to draw every tear from my eye I will trust him today before There'll be music again There's a song in my heart He didn't impart I'll sing it again Through the dark only
0: so many more, so many more would give voice to the same testimony that their troubles brought them to their knees and they have never stood taller. First Peter chapter 1 verses 6 and 7, now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of troubles these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, may be proved genuine and may result in praise when Jesus Christ is revealed. The ultimate blessing of our troubles, you saw it in the text, a crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him, a literal crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. Let me ask you, how does God know that you love Him? Is it because you sing it? Is it because you say it? Is it because you pray it? I submit to you that our most eloquent expression of love to God, here it is, is when we cling to Him and trust Him in our times of trial and trouble. It's not when it's easy, it's not when it's convenient, it's not when it's popular, but it's when the bottom drops out of your life. It's when your suffering is prolonged, it's when you're hammered with adversity and you still cry out from your spirit, Abba, Father. The crown of life is promised to those who love Him and love for Him is communicated best when the troubles of this life are trying to pull us down and pull us under, and instead, we are buoyed up.